This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? name means Kal, which is time. She includes everything, life and death. She includes hope and hopelessness. She's light and she's dark. There is no parts of our human lives that are excluded from her adoration. Anything that we want to cut away, she says, that too is my child. She's so whole. She's so complete. She's that terrifying. She's the fullness of the divine. She's everything the divine is not supposed to be. She's dark. She's dirty. She's angry. She's hungry. She's naked. She's cutting off heads because only the heart can see rightly. And it is time for us to speak from the heart, to rise from the heart, to cut off the head which has been leading us in this direction of madness and she is furious because her world is almost destroyed you see Durga which is the divine feminine in the Hindu tradition she's beautiful she's dressed in red and pink and she's riding in on a tiger not unlike the marches of women riding in on pussy riot we are all in pink and red So she rides in, there's Shiva and Durga, and they're fighting this battle against the demons of ego, against the demons of greed, against the demons of separation. And they're powerful, however, they begin to understand that every time they wound a great demon with every drop of blood, a thousand more demons emerge. And anyone who knows a malignant narcissist might know something about that. And they are realizing that they are losing because every time it appears they're winning, more demons arise. And so in the last hour, and make no mistake, we are in the late, late hour now. From within Durga. A deeper, more fierce form of the divine feminine rises from her head, and that is Kali. And that is the Dark Mother. And that is the force of sacred activism, of broken-hearted, tender-hearted, fierce motherhood, from which we too must rise. And she says, no, not this time, not my children. And she saves the world. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist is not in our stars, 
but in ourselves. Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on fall through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. A couple of months ago, I played a couple of short pieces of. Vera de Chalambert, a young woman who wrote a stunning and brilliant article in response to the election of Donald Trump. She has a very interesting story, which we're going to hear today. Vera de Chalambert is a writer, healer, and a scholar of comparative religions. And for the next hour and a half, we're going to hear her story and, at the end, her article. So I, I was born in the former Soviet Union, and I was born quite premature. And I'm only mentioning that because as I think about my life, I realize that's actually a really big piece for me. I was born like about two and a half months premature, and I spent a lot of time in an incubator. And I think that that affected me in a particular way is like this early trauma where I didn't have a sort of a built-in container. My childhood was spent in this like boundaryless place where I couldn't tell where, you know, I was kind of feeling everything all the time. Everything was kind of directly moving through me. And I think that there is this way in which I'm still continuing to heal that gap, that kind of developmental gap of not having many boundaries or healthy boundaries. So I, from as early as I could remember myself, there was really this sense of feeling everyone and kind of seeing everything from above a little bit. I even had this, I remember a really early memory of like looking into my hands and then zooming into inside my head into like this black box inside my head. And then just whoosh, popping out. When I was born, I had casts. I was crippled, I was born with feet in and under. And I had casts for the first two and a half years of my life. And so I think the, having the experience of being in the body as I came into this this world wasn't very comforting for me. And so I just hung out elsewhere. And so if I had to say, I would say that my path so far has been a path into this body, into incarnation, right? Like learning how to, how to be, how to tolerate, how to tolerate the, the muchness and the beauty and the heartbreak and the discomfort of this world. Also, I think that went along or that kind of matched my very early sensibility of moving towards the divine. And I came from, I lived in like this Jewish secular environment where God was poetry and art and protest and literature. And my mother, instead of reading me fairy tales, would read me these like <laughs> beautiful, heartbreaking poetry from Marina Tsitaeva and Anna Akhmatova. There are these soul wailers of the Russian soul, if you will. People who have seen the, the shattering of their worlds, who lived through revolutions, you know, have, and, and 
I think that really profoundly affected me. And I remember the first time I heard the word God as a child, it was outside of the home, somewhere maybe in like, you know, kindergarten situation. And it's like my whole body landed. It was like, oh yeah, this is where I belong. And then I've, I've been like a one-trick pony ever since. It's like my only, my only interest, my only, my only direction, my only devotion in so many ways. So I grew up in the city called Lvov, which before World War II was actually a Polish city. And Martin Buber was born and raised there, many incredible thinkers and scientists. And so many Polish people loved the city so much that many of them stayed instead of going back to Poland once the city became Soviet. And that meant that I grew up in like a trilingual culture, Russian, Polish, Ukrainian, and I went to a Polish school where all the subjects were in Polish. And also Polish people, they're very deeply and devotionally Catholic. And although in the Soviet Union, religion didn't exist, it was a topic, it was like a topic non grata. It was not really allowed, welcomed, you could get into serious political trouble if you if you practiced any form of religion. There were nuns and priests coming into my school because it was a Polish school teaching subversively religion. And for me, that was like, that was heaven. That was all I ever wanted. And so secretly from my parents, because I figured that wouldn't be so kosher, <laughs> I, I studied with the nuns and the priests and, and, and had my first communion, secretly went and had my first communion at like 10, where I confessed that I'm not actually Catholic. And maybe this is not very kosher of me. And then I came back home and I told my parents and they didn't know what to do with me. What do you do with this, right? My dad was like, oy vey. My mother was like, I don't know what to say. So then I thought, okay, this is maybe very unkosher because I was never baptized. So I went at the time, this is like right as the Soviet Union breaks down and there's mass chaos and there's economic and social chaos. Currencies changing all the time. People are wailing openly in the streets and digging through garbage dumps. There's no bread. There's no, it, it's like a real collapse of, of my world at the time. And you know where some kids kind of had have this narrative of if when their parents have a divorce, there's like this little voice that says, this is my fault that they got divorced. Somehow the way it landed in me was that it was my fault that the world around me was collapsing. That somehow I wasn't, I don't know, pure enough so that I could have somehow been better. And so for after the Catholic kind of First Communion, I, I, they had mass baptisms at the time. And I snuck into a mass baptism in an Armenian Orthodox Church because my mother's father was Armenian and I kind of, kind of thought, oh wow, there's a connection there. And so I, you know, I, I, I had a baptism there. There were Baptists coming in, in stadiums, kind of doing the Holy Spirit thing. And of course, I, that was the, you know that that was my life. I was sneaking away to try and find God everywhere. And then we were very fortunate to be to become political refugees at the time, and we immigrated my family and I when I was 11 to Florida. And when I came to Florida, this other world opened up because you see, Judaism in the former Soviet Union was considered an ethnic identity, a national identity, it was something stamped in your passport that you had to hide most of the time because it, there was sort of systemic anti-Semitism. So that was not something you wanted out there. And and it was very pervasive. I mean, even as children, people would, the teachers would say, all the Russian kids, raise your hands. All the Ukrainian kids, raise your hands, right? So until it got to me, I didn't want to raise my hand. This is something you wanted not to. You mm -hmm. wanted to fit in. You didn't want to stick out. You didn't want this to be your cross to bear, so to speak. So, and then I came to America where all of a sudden, not only was it okay to be Jewish, but it was a religion. 
I mean, that was a great moment for me where I thought, oh my God, there was there was something about my lineage that could connect me to the divine too. And so then I kind of dove into into the Jewish tradition and and because I came to to America, I didn't speak English. I felt I felt like I was split and that that my world was cut off somehow in the sense that there was no way that I could communicate where I was coming from. The gray and the heartbroken and the devastated and the you know, and the shattered and then into the Florida sunshine, smiling people, large supermarkets, you know, with 25,000 colors and cheeses and breads while I was, you know, just coming of waiting. And I mean, this is so, so interesting of waiting. It was like that moment where people were waiting in line for bread. I was waiting in run. That was my only responsibility as a kid, right? For like an hour or much more until there was no bread when you got to the front. So like these kinds of very difficult dissonance. There was a, such a dissonance between my new life in America and the month my old life. I had such a difficult time finding my place and, you know, integrating these various kind of narratives that were that formed me. And so what happened then as I was becoming a teenager and felt like I so did not believe is that I, I drowned myself in books. And what I did is I went into the library and I read every New Age book in the library. And, you know, and, and I, I read indiscriminately philosophy, religion, you know, everything I could get my, my hands on. And not surprisingly, that led me when I came to college that led me into a pretty easy choice of direction, which was religious studies and in comparative literature at the time as well. And I was extremely fortunate because I came to the University of Florida and at that time, the University of Florida had this emergence happening and the faculty of the arts and sciences and the medical school at UF had these incredible professors who were all kind of profoundly interested in consciousness studies who were very deeply influenced by the work of Ken Wilber and who uh, formed something called the Center for Spirituality and Health. And it was largely due to a patronage of Mickey Singer. I don't know if you know who Michael Singer is. So at the time, he wasn't yet on the scene, but he already had this beautiful place called this Temple of the Universe in the woods in Alachua, where he would invite lots of different spiritual teachers. And he was one of the patrons of the center and made it possible for the center to begin inviting some of the world's great mystics and thinkers and spiritual teachers. And my mentor at the time was the director of the center. His name was Shia Eisenberg, Sheldon Eisenberg. And he was really my first spiritual mentor. He was a renewal rabbi and a Wilbury, a Wilberian kind of integrative, integral theory thinker. He was the chair of the Department of Religion at the time. And he really took me under his wing and mentored me. And so I became the student director of the center. And somehow at that time arose this community of students where we all had the same longing. We all had that same thirst for spirituality, for, for embodied spirituality, for paradox. It was really interesting. And who, who we got to meet were like we had lunch with Ram Dass and mm -hmm. Father Thomas Keating was the like, inaugural guest. Reb Zalman would come and work with us. And this wasn't like a moment or a talk. They would come and they would spend time with us. And they would do kind of a weekend long kind of workshops with us. So I really felt so deeply shaped by that time, both because by 1920, I read everything Ken Wilber ever wrote. So it was difficult to have a kind of magical, mythical understanding of religion. And also because I began to, and it felt like receive transmissions from these elders, from these incredible teachers in our culture who I got to experience firsthand. 
and also kind of grew this community of students when we came together and had a contemplative community that formed. At the time, it looked like in a very from like a wisdom circle, right? It was a very circular kind of process, but that we we came together every Sunday morning or Saturday morning, I don't remember anymore, and really shared our processes and integrate, trying to integrate all these different practices that we were being given. For example, centering prayer when Father Keating came and taught us, right? We would do these practices together. We would, we would see how they, how they meet our ordinary human lives and, you know, post-teenage dramas. And it was quite, an, quite a profound shaping time for me. Then I went off to Harvard Divinity School where I also got a lot of pieces and I, I was really fascinated by, on one hand, comparative mysticism. I was interested in how the experience of mystics across the spectrum of different religiosities and religions compared. What did they all experience? What was the language that they used? And then on the other, there was this other academic part of me that really was interested in discourses of power. You know, how, how does reason oppress? How does language trap us? And so somehow I feel like these things are continuously moving through me, the questions of power, the questions of how we form identity and how do we connect to the real? How do we connect to the real? And so then I went off and studied for four years in the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. And really for me, that was the real divinity school experientially in the sense in which it was all about working with trauma, doing profound kind of psycho-spiritual process work where I didn't just get to talk about being afraid. I got to scream it out and beat it out and, you know, kind of use my body in the healing process. And so that was really the beginning of my kind of descend into what I think as, as my incarnation. I think until that time, I was really living maybe from the heart up, but maybe from the neck up. And in the Brennan school where there was a lot of core energetic work that was being done that I began to understand that that this body is something too. Because I, I understood it on a mental level, I mean, you know, integral theory and such, but not in an experiential way. And also began to become more and more sensitive to subtle worlds and to subtle energy realities. Even though I had these very expanded experiences from a very early age where I wasn't located in my body, let's say, and I, you know, all kinds of things happened. And I always felt like I was someone in a liminal space between this world and the next. There's so many kinds of experiences, right? But working as a healer, which was kind of what I was doing at the time, before there was like an intuition and a general sense of something invisible being there. It began to be as concrete as like a rock. So running energy began to be as real as having rocks thrown at me, for example. It wasn't something intuitive or amorphous. I began to perceive what different people's traumas look like in their field. Sometimes I would be in a healing and these entire kind of movies would open up about someone's life. And then you would feel kind of, I don't know, you know, is this my projection? What is that? So I began to explore these more subtle realms and... It was quite an interesting process. And I want to say I had experiences, pretty profound experiences, especially at a certain point of kind of psychic opening. When I was 18, I went to this retreat as kind of a silent retreat. And at some point, I think my container wasn't strong enough to kind of tolerate what opened up for me. And it looked like people kind of seek enlightenment or awakening, but it looked like for me, 
a kind of a peak experience that my body couldn't tolerate. Like I was in a kind of extended state. I went to sleep. I saw a bunch of dreams and then I went into a darkness and I couldn't turn off. I couldn't turn off my awareness of it. And it felt like an infinity, like an eternity. And then new dreams came up. Like basically what happened was that for a whole night, I couldn't turn off. And as when I woke up, I couldn't tell if my body was real anymore. I kind of had this kind of break. And I remember like laughing hysterically and people were coming up to me and they were, you should leave. And they didn't, they, they didn't feel comfortable with me leaving. But everything just kind of, it broke open, except it broke open in a very dissociative way. I couldn't tell what was real. I couldn't tell what was happening. And that was at 18, 19. And I think that wasn't very helpful for me, actually. I think that the rest of my time was kind of from that point on was spend mending what kind of broke open prematurely integrating my personality and luckily i was at the time in a context where i had mentors at the university of florida and then after the barbara brennan school of healing i started working with jason schulman who's really my teacher who's this wonderful baba for me who's not very known and i'm not exactly sure why because he i think he's one of the most integrated teachers on the scene he bridges the theistic which means god-centered narrative or spiritual way of being this devotional god-centered way with the non-dual perspective he is a zen teacher his lineage on one side is zen and then what happened to him was that the kabbalah opened up for him because if you know anything about kabbalah you will know it is esoteric it is impossible to understand it is kind of heady and you know it's difficult to touch with a 10-foot pole but what happened in his case was that the entire lineage opened itself up to him and kind of began flowing through him in the direction of how to use that lineage and that wisdom for healing in a healing way. And so he brought the Buddhist and the Kabbalistic together. And those two traditions have always been the sort of dominant shaping kind of narratives for me. For example, I work with Reb Zalman, as I mentioned, and when I was 21, I was one of the youngest people to, he used to be really, really interested in eldering and aging and saging. And I was one of the youngest people to do that work with him because I was so interested also somehow in where does wisdom come from? And so he worked, of course, a lot with the Kabbalistic lineages and I felt it kind of moving through me in some way. And when I met Jason, I mean, actually, I remember I just heard about Jason and my entire body felt like yes and i went and i googled him and i knew i had to work with him it was like this you know how it happens with teachers he was mine and i did another three years of working with him really really shifted the way i look at healing the way i looked at the awakening process i stopped using the spiritual life and the healing process to get out of my pain his work was like a deep invitation for radical hospitality to everything. Very tantric in its nature, really, in that way. And a real invitation to paradox, to not resolving, to not fixing things, to not using anything to save ourselves from reality, but rather using everything that arises for deeper intimacy with what's here. And it's like a lot of the teachings that I got before intellectually or even maybe spiritually began to be embodied while I was working with him. And he has a number of really fantastic books. One of them is the Instruction Manual for Receiving God, and I really highly recommend it.
that come through him and I love it so much. So Jason was a really deep, deep part of my heart and formative influence. And then I went off to Paris with my great love, who was a French man. And very quickly, I had children, which was another part of initiation for me, motherhood. Talk about embodiment, you know, talk about spiritual teaching. Everything that you've ever wanted to deny about yourself comes straight up in your face and everything is triggered and sleepless nights. It breaks you down, breaks you open. It really brings you into the body. And as a woman, you become the food. You become the food of every kind, emotional, psychological, physical. That was extremely challenging for me, especially for me as my natural proclivity was not hanging out in this world, not knowing how to change the, the diapers, not knowing how to make the food, not knowing how to do any of this human stuff that was so abhorrent to me. You know, and even though I could talk about like, embodiment and I still do and it's still I still this is still where I wrestle so in no way do I do I want to say that I'm now beyond this this is this is the territory that it keeps moving through me over and over again but at, when I became a mother it was particularly eloquent for me well you know you said something in the very beginning and you're alluding to it now also which is that you know we're all kind of learning how to live on this planet and it's it's intense here and it's difficult and, and we never get a break in terms of having to learn and and deal with stuff and you know we're all bozos on this bus i uh, love that so much yeah. <laughs> i'm the, a bozo we're all bozos on this bus yeah totally. we're all everybody's kind of in the same boat and if we think that someone else has it all figured out and don't, doesn't have any challenges then we're just not seeing the situation clearly yeah you know and and frankly what else what else but becoming intimately familiar with our own suffering can move us towards service towards healing towards the awakening process because what does that mean the awakening to what and you know how many how many more men does it take to go up a mountain you know to stare at walls so so we're awake it's not such a big deal i mean i feel like for someone who's kind of more prone to expanded states of consciousness i'm constantly like so what and of course, there's so many different qualities of experience, but really on some level for me, it's always been like, cool, but so what? Like, what now? So we get an insight, what now? How do we, how do we bring it down? How do we work with that broken and that human in us? You know, that isn't about some kind of other state, but like here and now. And I'm so grateful to be able to see this shift in our pop spiritual culture and even in the non-dual culture that there seems to be this movement of integration, this kind of descent back down into incarnation. And I think there's also this way in which, you know, we talk so much about the emergence of the feminine on, in this time on the planet. And I feel like almost unanimously, everyone can feel it in some way. But there seems to be almost this natural emergence of, of a spiritual teaching through reality, through culture, through everything, where we are being made to face our reality here and now. Like we're being brought back down into the mud, into the yuck, into the mess, into the heartbreak of it all. And my God, thank God, thank God. Enough, enough already with like, you know, blissing out in mountaintops. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have deeply contemplative spiritual lives. We should and we must. But like, you know, Andrew Harvey always speaks about sacred activism, when the passion and love of the mystic for God and the passion of the activist for justice come together, this, this third fire emerges within us that can actually be an offering to this world. And so my interest has always been in some way like the feminine movement 
You know, the masculine is the movement towards up and away towards transcendence. The feminine movement is down into the body, into our sensuality, into desire, into devotion. You know, if I'm really nothing, if I'm anything, I'm like a devotee. Like I am at the feet of the mother, I will worship, I, you know, I will wail. I, I, there's like, I don't have anything to offer but those qualities, I feel like, you know, this like heartbreak and longing of which my heart is woven. And so that's a really downward movement. For me, the initial movement was completely up, as, you know, up and away. And that natural tendency where I think we tend to use that as defense, as a way to save ourselves from all of this muchness and all of this pain. But it seems to me that my work emerges from this other place. It seems to me that what is emerging on our planet right now is inviting us into this other place. Probably because the feminine really has been exiled. Because it must become integrated into our spiritual lives, into our political, social, ecological realities. Claire Dakin, she said, the exclusion of the feminine has led us to a world on the edge of collapse. The reemergence is going to be a dance to behold. If you're just joining us and wondering, we're listening to Vera de Chalambert, who wrote a powerful and brilliant article in response to the election of Donald Trump a couple of years ago. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. So what we've discussed for the last three or four minutes, I'm going to leave as a teaser because we're going to get into it much more. But I'm going to bring you back to your story because I think the whole complete story is interesting. So you're in Paris. You were raising these kids and life is great. I have healing, healing center. practice and great There's husband, great kids. Every, you know, like the fairy tale. Uh-huh. So what I should say, fairy tale and a very deep sense that I'm containing. I can't let go, I'm containing it to not change. Like there was already a sense in which I was living in a rigid way, which is actually very not, not naturally who I am and how I am. But there was the sense of having to hold on. This, I don't want to lose it, this is all I want, this is all I need. Like a completely desperate, like codependence with the moment, with right. the reality. And a kind of a, a real sense of like becoming somebody. And not that I was really becoming somebody, but in my head there was this real, this real kind of like, what should I be? What should I look like? How should I present myself to the world? Oh, I'm a healer now. Oh, I should be wiser. Oh, I should like, there was like this real semi-unconscious, but really almost semi-conscious, like of wanting to become more perfect, mm. of wanting to become more serious, more less this mess that I am naturally and, and more appropriate in the French way and in the normal social way. And it was like this agenda that I was beginning to have and having more spiritual experiences. I remember having this weird thought like, oh, I should have a more serious meditation practice. Like it was like I was compartmentalizing to make more of a perfect life, you know, and 
Amma came to Paris, and Amma comes to Paris once a year. And I wasn't a big Amma fan. It wasn't like, oh, let's go see, you know, because there's such a bhakti field around her. So many people who, who, who are devoted to her and who really experience her as the embodiment of the divine, of the feminine and of the mother. That wasn't at all my story. I, I just wanted to go and get hugged. It seemed like a fun thing to do, you know. So I went, and it's a huge compound that she comes into. And just as I, I came in and I walked into the space and like, I mean, I say it, it's funny to retell stories, but like I found myself on my knees, wailing, like with all of my heart, like wailing into the ground, mother burn me up. It was spontaneous and mother burn me up was not my language. And burn me up for a person who was like containing it all, you know, was definitely not what I was going for. And it was just like I kept repeating it and wailing and wailing. And it was like just it wasn't stopping. Like for a while, I was just there on my knees. And as I was saying it, it was like on automatic, like words were coming out. And I kept thinking, who is saying it? And stop it. I don't mean it. Like there was a fear. (laughs) I'm like, I don't mean it. I don't mean it. What the does it mean? Like it was like a very strange experience, you know. And then kind of the evening unfolded and it was this beautiful field. And the, the entire night there was this beautiful table of jewelry. You know, they sell things all around. So yeah, there's bracelets like the and prayers and all back. kinds of things. So, you know, you're all expanded. You might want to buy something. It's really good for business, I'm sure. But there was this table and I kept circling it. There was these beautiful objects. It's like jewelry and some other beads. And and there were these earring there that I, that I kept looking at, this beautiful golden earring with like stuff hanging off of it. And it was like I needed it so much. I kept going back. And then I was like, I'm not going to be a spiritual material. I'm not going to consume. But it, I kept being pulled back to the table. So finally, I asked the lady, I said, listen, this earring, where's the other one? And I would really like to try them on. And she said, oh, there is no other earring. This is from the altar of Kali. This came from Kali's statue in Amma's ashram. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I haven't heard the name Kali before. I was a scholar of comparative religion. From a distance, at an arm's length, I absolutely have known about this dark Hindu goddess. And I wanted to have nothing to do with it. Like my Judeo-Christian kind of consciousness, the hair on my hand stood up and I like bolted. I like got out of there. I didn't want to have anything to do with that table or anything Mm -hmm. else. I didn't exactly get the connection between Amma and Kali either. Actually, that freaked me out, I remember. I, I had no idea. And so, you know, that was the night of Devi Bhava, where she blesses people and marries people and blesses babies. And so uh, then at the end of the night, what she does is she throws rose petals at people. So and it was, I was just blissed out. It's like six in the morning. I get into the car with a friend of mine. We get on a highway in the woods and maybe 10 minutes after I leave Amas Darshan, a red car, and we're going at full speed, a red car comes out of its lane on a highway at full speed, rams into into our car. You know, and, and it's like the traditional story, life in slow motion, everything slows down. You know, you kind of have this weird life review, you know, you're going to die, you know, some kind of stuff. And it was like instant instant answer right mother burn me up here you have it i found myself i was like on the ground i didn't know if i was alive i didn't know if i was broken open i didn't i had no sense of where i landed but i i felt i felt that same energy that made my my hair stand up Mm. i felt it like move through me and in every cell of my body 
I knew that my life would never be the same. And then very, you know, miraculously, except for having, you know, herniated disc and being dislocated, I was okay. You know, by miracle. I mean, everyone who came on that scene said, this is impossible. This is a miracle. So very quickly afterwards, my life began to be, you know, I call it, I began to dance with Kali. Immediately, I could no longer work with people. The healing practice has to shut down. All of the uncertainty within me that I was containing, all of my confusion, all of my heartbreak, all of my my kind of fear was I was being I was like being shaken out, shaken up. Like the accident shook up everything that was held down in my cells, held down in my heart, held down everything that was a no, not for me, not this, you know. And it was all beginning to come up. So I was like shaking through every day, like dislocated, completely overwhelmed, you know, like I'm generally overwhelmed because I've experienced so much and and so deeply very often, but this took it to a whole other level. Mm. So that began kind of an identity crisis, right? Like who am I now? What do I do? Everything I thought I knew, I don't know anymore. It was like a really not an unusual or extraordinary encounter with death. You know, where everything that doesn't belong and everything that isn't true kind of has this natural way of of shifting out. And then within months, maybe three months, my father passed away. And my father, I mean, it was like a tremendous, tremendous shock. And within a week, my life in Paris closed down. Everything I built, everything I knew, and I moved back to the States with my family. And kind of another kind of stripping began where I became a fatherless child and, you know, it was interesting because it was there I was just being stripped and just beginning to reconfigure myself and just beginning to reconfigure my identity and just beginning to integrate something and kind of get a new sense of of who I am or should be or whatever. And then that got shaken up again, burned up, right? And, and when, as my father died, I began to feel this this tremendous deeper and deeper levels of pain and trauma surfacing in me. And I think as my, when my father died, what began to happen is that I began to connect to like ancestral trauma. My father was a Holocaust survivor. And I think that was very deeply in my in my field and in my cells. And I remember that period felt very much like trauma that I couldn't tolerate that was beyond anything with coming up and out. And I think that was happened because it was just recently I was shaken up. And then I was shaken up again, so it was like deeper and deeper stuff. And then just as I was beginning to reorient myself once again, I began to move through a devastating divorce. And for someone who is, you know, confessedly a drama queen, meaning I don't just feel pain, I feel like heart-wrenching pain, right? Like everything feels like you know, tremendous in my field, just like joy and love and ecstasy, right? Like I have this ecstasy agony place in me that is very big and tremendous i have to say that death was nothing compared to what i was beginning what i experienced with the divorce because really the divorce shattered and threatened everything that i identified with the perfect mother the perfect wife i was far from perfect but like in my head it was my story the fairy tale the fairy tale was such a profound part of my kind of false self Right. And like a, belonging to a particular kind of world that was comfortable and affluent and and all of that being stripped all at once. And Rick, it was like 
I said about being burning, it felt like that entire period felt like I was being burned alive. And in fact, so profoundly so that I remember having visions of like being stretched like in those Middle Ages torture rack while being burned alive. One night I had such an extreme and this was all psycho spiritual pain, right? The pain was so physically in my body, I passed out from pain. And actually that night, the pain was so profound and I had this like, I passed out from pain and, and for maybe like two, three days, I couldn't feel anything at all. It was like my, something in my brain kind of overloaded and blew out. It was like I blew out the, my capacity to feel any more pain. Not everyone who goes to see Ama, I think, you know, how the mystery unfolds itself and how life humbles us and how our, the process of spiritual maturation, how that unfolds for each one of us is completely unique. And our relationship with teachers in different fields of grace is completely unique to all of us. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say, to argue, or at least to, to question, whether that doesn't happen to everyone on a spiritual path. I said, bring it on because some place in me where I just wanted to offer myself up well, like from, from the earliest of ages, right? Like that was my, the only thing I really wanted. Mm -hmm. I think what happened was when I came into the field of Ama, the deep yearning in my heart that I was containing couldn't take it anymore. And the deep yearning in my heart to offer myself up, to lay at her feet, to, to be her instrument, right? To be burned up began to move through me, right? Even if consciously I couldn't choose it, some part of me chose it. And so that began to kind of burn me up on a level that I think I consented to. I consented to in the deepest part of my being. And so what was very interesting about that period of, you know, burning was that the pain was so extreme, I began to have visions. And, and it was like, you know, sometimes you can do something to help yourself. Somehow I knew in some wise place within me that there was nothing I could do to save myself from what was happening to me. And my prayer life began to change from, I used to pray, mother, please help me, help me, help me, like because I was in so much pain and it seemed to be relentless. And I was a mother, it wasn't like I could just like be in my ecstatic pain. I was like, I had to function. My prayer life went from mother, help me, save me, help me to take me, right? Like there was this, this reorientation that happened of like, don't ever stop until there's nothing else to burn. Right? Like that's all I began to want. It was like maybe a weird masochistic kind of thing, but it was like the places that I began to feel most intimate with life and most intimate with God were those places of radical heartbreak where I couldn't save myself. And God in her wisdom was kind enough to put me in a place where I couldn't save myself where I had nothing to hold on to, where all of my old defense mechanisms and structures weren't working anymore. You know, I mean, I had this, this one experience actually, and I wonder about it. I had a number of weird visions that came when I had tremendous pain. But one of them, I was in the supermarket. I passed by the lobsters. I don't know what it was, my heart just, I cracked open, like spilled over, and I kept moving past the lobsters, but all I could feel, suddenly it was like the pain of the lobsters, and then it went into like the larger and larger fields of pain, the pain of like the, the society we live in, of people having to survive, of of war and genocide, and like it was like in some weird way, it just like all of the suffering of the world began to flood through. It started with the lobsters, and it's like I went from the beginning of the aisle to the middle of the aisle. By the time I moved, to the center of the aisle, 
I was like I was being pierced from every direction. It was like, and this is one of the very few times where my physical world, my spiritual vision merged. And what I saw was gaping blood from me in all directions. And I actually couldn't tell if it was real or not. And what I thought is like, oh my God, I've become a wound of Christ, right? Like it was, had this kind of weird Christological feeling experience. And I was like holding on. I couldn't see anything anymore. I was just like shaking and holding on to the aisle and like feeling this unbearable heartbreak and pain. And then it's like I began to sort of feel orgasmic or an orgasm. So as I was standing there and like heartbreak and then like this weird energy was beginning to move through me and I couldn't see what was happening, like tears rolling down my face. Like I had to make my way through the aisle out of the store, like in all of that continuing to move through me, I had to find enough like human concentration to drive myself from the store to my house so that I could lay down. And that was maybe one of the most horrifying, terrifying, ecstatic, beautiful experience that I had. Something happened that was so tremendous. And those kind of experiences for me began to unfold in that period a few times. And I almost wonder if that had to do with burning up karma or beginning to open me up in a way which I couldn't hold anything at bay anymore. Because I already had the language of intimacy with life, of leaning in, the tantric kind of, you know, saying yes to everything. You know, way before I was even holding women's circles and saying, you know, you have to use everything. Fear, anger, despair, heartbreak, use it. It's all Shakti. Don't turn away from it. Like, I, I got it. I got it in many different ways. But I don't really think I got it in an embodied way until that began to kind of move through me in a more physical, direct way. I will tell you that like a year ago, I was still on my knees. I wasn't sure what I have to offer. I came to the Science and Non-Duality Conference and gave my first kind of talk about Kali, which happened to be randomly on the exact four-year anniversary of my car accident. But I remember at the time it was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a substitute teacher? How do I make a living? What? How do I, who am I? I don't have, you know, like just in this like still total unraveling kind of in a way right and i will tell you that i started saying this thing which which actually you know i would say mother use me or kill me use me or kill me and it was like it became a mantra for a while and i actually wrote an obituary for myself i was in so much pain and in so much sense like i of a not being used it was like so interesting of of feeling such deep separation and disconnection at that particular moment. And I like wrote out like the few things that I would be remembered for. And I saw like, I just kind of saw through it and I wrote this obituary. And in it, I, it was like kind of this kind of kind of completing. I felt like I needed to complete my life as it was before. I don't know why, but it's like sounds weird. I'm kind of just embarrassed by it actually. But And like the next day, I was at the ocean. I went at night. And I was laying up and I was looking at the stars. And then all of a sudden it started raining sand on me. And I was like, what the hell? And I set up and a giant, like huge turtle, huge turtle, like a mothership of a turtle at my feet was digging a nest. And I sat there in like awe for an hour, just looking at this mother turtle give birth. And I just thought that there was something that was like an initiation an omen of some kind like she it was a huge beat she could have chosen anything like she came to my feet you know and afterwards very quickly 
it seemed like overnight I came back from sand. I wasn't sure what I was doing. And then the election happened. And this article that seemed to be like fully birthed, you know, in my head kind of came out and went globally viral. Kali takes America. It kind of took America kind of, you know, got translated into German and Russian. It was like such a crazy experience. And then, you know, Marion Williamson read it somehow and she called me up and asked me to come to Sister Giant. And I was like, you have the wrong person. I don't, I have a nobody. What do you mean? And she was like, do not speak about yourself that way. You know, right? But like, I was just, it's true. It's true. And so, and so somehow it like began opening doors. I began to be invited places. This kind of different movement began to move through me. And I cannot tell you that, oh, I, I, I feel connected to my purpose. In fact, I would say that's my deepest pain still, not knowing if I am in fact being used, yearning to help the world more. You know, that pain and confusion that we all feel right now in the collective is also very deeply in me. But I can tell you that somehow my yearning to be an instrument is a million times clearer than it was. And it was so perfectly clear already. It's like that yearning is becoming deeper and deeper. I don't know if I'm actually being used, but I can tell you it's it's like the, the one prayer in my heart. And I think that's how it works, right? Like that's actually how life works. We're given signs. If we listen deeply enough, it doesn't matter what the prayer in our heart is. If we are yearnest enough and we're able to listen just in that place, there's a communication that happens with life directly between us and, and her. But I've had some profound teachers who are not very popular, in fact, are not known. Jason, Barbara, Lori Keene. But in the popular, in the dominant culture, the people that I felt most affinity with would be Andrew Hardy, Mirabai Star. Adam Bacco, for example, right? Uh, Matthew Fox, Cynthia Bourgeau, you know, I was hearing about since I was in divinity school. Like, So what's really particularly interesting is that those are the people, the people that I felt most connected to began reaching out to me. They were the ones posting my articles. You know, Andrew Harvey called me on the phone. I was like, who is this? He was like, this is uh, Andrew, darling. And I was like, oh, and I cried. I just wailed at him for like 15 minutes. And I said, I'm so sorry. Don't worry, never stop crying. This is the best conversation I've ever had. You know, but like, what's amazing, and like, before I read, before I wrote Kali Takes America, I read Mirabai Star's Dark Night of the Translation of Dark Night of the Soul. But it's not just a translation, it's also like her unique transmission, her interpretation of the Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. And I, mean, I feel like largely the article emerged from it. And then she called me and, and helped me and supports me. And so anyway, so, what, what do you think it was about the Kali article that struck such a chord? Well, I think that it just came out at the right time because everyone was shocked. There was like a collective. So a lot of people, I think, after I read the article, were like, oh, you think Trump is Kali? And I kept saying, no, 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 I don't think Trump is Kali at all. The quality, this, the, the archetype of Kali that I saw emerging through Trump winning the election was actually through the complete shattering of our narratives. It was like such a tremendous shock for everyone. I think it was shock for Trump himself. No one expected it. It was a great disillusionment with our systems, with democracy, you know, like it was a great disillusionment. And actually, that's the function for me of the process of spiritual maturation and of what holy darkness is all about. It shocks us into reality. It takes away our misconceptions, our self-deceptions, 
it is incredibly disappointing. It like all of those ways in which we puff ourselves up and tell ourselves the stories and know things and because our you know our certainties, right? It comes and it shakes it all up and it leaves us in this place where life really happens in the uncertainty of it all in this groundless nature of reality. And so so I think what happened was that everyone felt that kind of a shattering of illusions that happened. I'm not saying there's something great about Trump winning the election. I'm just saying it was such a surprise. It was such a disruption to the orders of things that I think there was a little tiny opening, you know, that began to let more more real feelings come through. And so I think me naming that connected with people more than anything. And then the way that maybe I wove in a little bit of pop culture with the passing of Leonard Cohen that happened around that time as well, you know, and he had this album called You Want It Darker. And when people heard the song, all the reviews of the albums had some version of, oh, Leonard Cohen, he has given up, he's depressed. But really what he was saying with that album was that it was almost like a prophetic song. He was saying, no matter how dark it gets, I am ready, hineni, hineni, I am willing, I am, take me, use me. It was like an offering, an offering of that part of us. He says, there's something in the human soul that yearns to serve when the emergency has become articulate. And I think in a way we are living in this time with climate change and with the political realities of the day where the emergency has become articulate. And there's something in a way in which I think I touched it and and it got triggered in all of our hearts. And I don't want to get into some kind of an idea that, you know, this is the end of the world and such things, because it doesn't actually matter, does it? It doesn't actually matter whether the world is going to end or not, because somewhere the world is always ending. And every moment that arises in some way is also a death. It's like to live fully and to live deeply, we have to be in in such intimate relationship with death. But what is different about this moment is that we, our species has never threatened its own continuation of this planet. Because this planet might be fine, no matter what we might be able to do to it. But really, we are threatening everything living on this planet and our own species. So in that way, since the development of the atomic bomb, I guess, this is a new level of engagement with our planet. And so again, I'm not a Hindu scholar. I didn't know that much about Kali. I began to be interested in Kali after I felt her emerge in my life. And it began to her emerge in my in my heart. But there are different kinds of archetypes of Kali. There's all these different other forms of, of the dark feminine that began kind of emerging. And in this weird way, like where I would see something and be like, what is that? And then find out that that's actually one of the expressions of Kali or everywhere I go in different cities, I'll, I, I get guided to icons of the black madonna in a way it's not really feminine masculine at all for me kali that quality of reality is beyond masculine and feminine but that the great mystery has a feminine kind of essence to it somehow like it pervades and there's also something about the feminine that's naturally dark i mean the womb is naturally dark the yoni i mean it's dark, the earth, the damp, dark earth from which gives birth to everything, certainly our civilization. It's darkness and the feminine is is very interconnected. The, the feminine, the dark feminine is the full feminine. 
I mean, Alan Watts used to start his lectures about Kali by, by an anecdote of an astronaut going up in space and then coming back and everyone saying, so you went up there. What is God like? And him coming back and saying, she's black. Because that, that darkness of space, the way it holds our planet, the way that it holds everything. So there is a very strong association between darkness and the feminine. And there's so many ways of speaking about Kali. And, you know, whatever I say will be a blasphemy to, to somebody. I, I have a very particular kind of feeling and interpretation about it. So please don't listen to me. This is just Vera stuff. So it's like, okay. When you think of the light feminine, let's say in, in the case of Mary, right? Like the illuminated, beautiful virgin that gives birth to, to Christ. It's like such a comforting image. And maybe as a child or it, it's, it's an image that invites you into the spiritual life. It says, yes, yes, you suffer. All my children suffer. I'm with you. I'm with you in your suffering. I will hold you, you know, call out to me and I will be there. And, and it's an inviting image that, that kind of first pulls us into the spiritual life maybe, you know? And it's important because that there's some kind of a majesty, a mystery, a, a, a magnetism, a erotic almost kind of a calling that I think the feminine aspect of reality kind of calls to us, like that, that our hearts hear and we want to respond. And very often it's like that, that yearning for illumination, that yearning for, for comfort and connection and devotion somehow but as we mature it seems to be universal and i say that's universal because in every culture and every spiritual lineage we hear stories of what saint john of the cross for example would, would call the dark night of the soul in other traditions this would be the death before you die but some kind of a period of deep crisis which is necessary for spiritual maturation and for the eventual process of union with the divine. And so it seems to me that the entry into that process, into that process, and what I mean by that is that process of direct relationship with reality, not through a teacher, not through a idea, not through a book, not through a concept, but direct relationship with reality. To me, that's what the dark feminine is. It's like the, it's that quality of reality that initiates us into union with the divine. And necessarily, when you think of Kali and the forms of the dark feminine in the Hindu tradition, Kali, Chinamasta in the Chamunda, right? This, this great, thin, emaciated, old Kali with weapons. She has ten hands and all the weapons of war. And in the Buddhist tradition, we have uh, the great Dharma protectresses, right? They are the great emanations of the dark feminine, too. Like the Dalai Lama has his own personal Kali, expression of Kali, and she's very fierce. And, and there's Ekajati, who is the protectress of Dzogchen. They are not for the faint of heart. They're fierce. They're surrounded by fire. They're surrounded by clouds of smoke because the smoke has to obscure the mind. Like in the Christian tradition, the cloud of unknowing, we have to enter the cloud of unknowing where our mind and our sense of self, it all gets clouded so that we can begin to have union with the divine. And those weapons, those weapons, it's because that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like to make contact with the real. It's, it's not fun. It's not cute. It's not lovely. It strips you to the bone. It breaks your heart. It like cuts through illusion. It is a point, it is for me, the spiritual process is a process of deep disappointment. 
Jason Schulman says, right, everyone thinks spirituality is about, you know, light, and it is. But it is also a process of becoming disenchanted with our illusions. And something has to do that, and that will never be comfortable. And it is the ultimate comfort as well. Because then there is nothing that you have to save yourself from anymore. You know that wherever it is that you find yourself, there the mother is already holding you. Because you know that there is nothing that you're willing to turn away from any longer and that that the mother is there holding it all with you. This is emerging. It's an emergent quality right now. There's actually a particular archetype that's emerging right now and it's emerging collectively, right? We are going to be faced with a deep, deep, deep reckoning of our collective karma on this planet. That is just a fact. Right now, it's just beginning, and I think that in the same way as the power of the initiation of Kali, that power of being stripped down to only what's real, you know, and that's going to be happening for us collectively because it must, because this is kind of what we need on a deeper sense as humanity. There needs to be a kind of a crucifixion that we enter. If you're just joining us and wondering who we're listening to, we're listening to Vera de Chalambert, who wrote a powerful and brilliant article a couple of years ago in response to the election of Donald Trump. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Here's a quote from Andrew Harvey that I think you had in one of your articles. He said, in preparation for the birth of the divine, the entire human race is now going through a global dark night, which will result in a new humanity that has been humbled and chastened by tragedy, so that it may open completely to the mystery of divine grace. There will be no resurrection of an embodied divine humanity without a systematic, perfectly organized, brutally complete crucifixion of everything in us that keeps us addicted to the systems of illusion that are now rapidly destroying everything. You know, truly, and I I believe that, I felt that to be true. When I saw Kali on the top of the Empire State Building, to me that was the sign of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not about fear mongering or us being afraid or not afraid. It's about that quality that I think, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we get to face, or we get to be thrown up against death, where we begin to see what's really important, and where we can yield into it, where we stop splitting life and saying, I can only have these experiences, and only those experiences spiritual are and good, but those other experiences not so interested. I want to keep them at bay. That's for other stupid, uneducated, uninteresting, unspiritual people, right? Like when, when the spiritual life begins to be a defense, a kind of a cloak of protection, that's where we have to ask ourselves, is that really what we yearn for? Because I think there is a deep collective yearning for the real. That's what we really most want. 
even if it takes a burning up, even if it takes deep suffering, I think that in the heart of hearts, we're all willing to offer it all up just so that we can have the taste. The first spiritual truth, like the Buddha said, is that life is full of suffering. So there's a way in which we have to begin to have the right relationship with suffering, not as a punishment for something that we did that was bad or a karmic retribution or something that's unique to me and mine, but something that is universal, something that is afflicting, that is a condition for incarnation. Suffering is the condition for incarnation on this planet in this shape of imperfection that is human. So there will always be suffering. There's nothing special about suffering. And if anything, suffering is a great tool of connection, right? Like knowing that I suffer and you suffer and you are a bozo and I am a bozo <laughs> and you are a holy mess and I am a holy mess. And there's no way of saving myself from that. Most likely we will have disease. We will be suffering. We will suffer from being away from our loved ones, from not knowing what our purpose is, from being away from the divine, from, from being subject to climate change and to our loved ones dying. We will be subject to a number of natural suffering, which we cannot escape. Accepting that is vital for a beginning of the spiritual life. Then there's also a way in which I think there's something about suffering and extreme suffering that also has a potential to purify. And I am not into purification. I am into the murk and the mess. I'm not into purification at all, but it seems to me that there is a function of suffering that seems to bring us towards union when we can no longer protect ourselves to make us yield to the divine. Right? There is something about it when I suffer, and I suffer a lot and relentlessly, sometimes for, you know, silly things, sometimes in my like weird spiritual ecstasy. But there is something about the movement of like moving towards that suffering and allowing it to have its way with me that feels very different than when I keep it at bay. And I don't think that's the only way. I think especially for those of us who have a lot of trauma in our system. It's so important not to blow ourselves out, to be so gentle and so kind and so tenderhearted with the ways in which we suffer, you know, and to remember that however suffering arises in our lives, it's not an abomination. Point it's also two. not something we need to recycle and glorify. But when you do look through every tradition, there is something akin to the divine itself breaking itself open, offering itself, being crucified, some, you know, that the brokenness is an inherent part, not only of the human life, but almost of the divine life itself. And there's a lot of misconception in the Western world about Kali. She's terrifying. I mean, I, as you can tell, my own reaction to the very concept is I ran, ran, ran out screaming. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, if you remember well, the associations with God is awe and fear. God appears in the same way as Kali's like clouds and smoke. God appears as a pillar of fire and as a cloud. And, and of course, that part of God in the Jewish tradition is seen as the Shekhinah, as the feminine aspect of the divine too. So I find that interesting. But that natural fear we have of being naked before the divine, I think is a necessary and very important function of Kali coming in. I mean, like being fear has an important function. Kali is terrifying and it's important for us to get in touch with our fears so that we're not containing them, right? She lets it all surface and she says, you can't turn away from that either. That too is my child. There's nothing which I will exile, so to speak. 
And the way in which she appears, actually, it's so interesting. In one of the tantric texts, there is a story of Kali. You know, in the Hindu tradition, there is the divine masculine, which is Shiva, and the divine feminine, which is Shakti. And so Shakti, the divine feminine, incarnates as Sati. And then Shiva and Sati have this great love, this great love affair. And then they, Sati is the first incarnation of the divine feminine in, in the stories of Hindu pantheon. And in the story, Sati's father isn't so cool about Sati marrying Shiva because Shiva is like the Lord of the dead. He has dreadlocks. He's horrifying. He hangs out in cemeteries. He puts ashes all over his face. That's like so inappropriate. <laughs> Her father is like not having any of it. And so he has this great sacrifice to the god Agni planned and he doesn't want Shiva around his very important flock of socially advanced gods. And so he does not invite them to the sacrifice. And Sati gets extremely angry because she's disrespected. The feminine is disrespected and she begins to be very, very angry and she wants to go to her father to express her, her anger. And Shiva says, no, you will not go anywhere. And now she's disrespected twice by her father and then by her husband. And in the text, what happens is that she turns into a ferocious, fearsome black goddess. In one of the stories, she turns into 10 goddesses, one of whom is black and ferocious. But in, in this one story, she, like, she turns into this great, terrifying goddess. And Shiva himself becomes terrified. And he says, who are you and what have you done to my beloved Sati? And she says, Shiva don't you recognize me? This is my true form. I only make myself convenient and beautiful so that you can take pleasure in it, but you will not disrespect me. And then she goes off and she throws herself in her father's fire. And then it's like a great drama that continues afterwards. But that's to say that even the God of death himself was terrified in the face of pure reality. Pure reality is meant to be so terrifying that it strips us to only what is real. And I really love that. To me, that's what Kali does. She cuts through all the bull. There was something like a grace that needed to come through. I mean, this was fierce grace that was most terrifying. I can't surrender. I can't feel my heart sometimes. It's always, always, always a struggle. Also, I'm not in that really vulnerable place that I was for a few years anymore. And I really was. It wasn't like I needed to try to surrender. It was just like there was just this a particular kind of an opening that was in me as I was moving through that, you know, and I think that happens for all of us when we just lose somebody or when we go through difficulty. You know, Pema Chodron in her book, When Things Fall Apart, it's a lot about that. There's a particular intimacy with life that happens. So there was nothing unusual about that. You know, we all experience that. But I think at this moment, I feel like I always pray to surrender. That's always my prayer. I pray to, to keep being polished. The Sufis say so that the mirror of my heart keeps being polished by joy and by suffering, but whatever God wants of me, by whatever God wants to give me, I think I trust more and more that whatever appears is the instrument of my spiritual process, is what I need most to keep healing and awakening.
What's really interesting about literally what Shiva and Shakti is, what Shiva and Kali is, Shiva is all-pervading silence and we are permeated with all-abiding consciousness. And Shakti is the play of life, is, is like the, the movement of life, is everything that arises and falls away. And so, you know, Shiva without Shakti is just the corpse. And so the ways in which those two come together in us, and the ways in which those meet in us, the ways in which we are both able to make a relationship with that deep quietness, and the ways in which then we allow ourselves to be penetrated by that in the dance of life, I think that cooks us very, very profoundly. So I've had experiences of emptiness, but it's only very recent for me that I feel like I've been dropping into or had any experiences with like deeper silence, very, very recent. I think my way or like my proclivity and maybe the way of the feminine is towards a bit of a different paradigm where it's like you're not trying to counter chaos with silence but rather there's a way in which the pain and the chaos of it becomes the medicine. I just posted on Facebook, I wish I had it in front of me, something from Naropa, mm -hmm. and he says, the emotions are the great wisdom. Like a jungle fire, they are the yogi's helpers. How can there be staying or going? What meditation is there by fleeing to a hermitage? So that there isn't this kind of dichotomy that we set up. Silence versus the pain and suffering of the world. But that somehow it's like this deep relationship that we begin to, to grow to everything that, that is here, that is us, that is within us, that is reality. As much the deep quality of our essence in silence as to this dance of the holy, the holy and the broken. So that maybe it's not always you know, like, you, do I have access to silence? Well, first of all, I don't know that that's actually true. I feel like more and more I just drop in and feel everything that's there. And it doesn't necessarily feel very silent for me. Sometimes it does. But sometimes in my deepest of dramas, where I am like on my knees wailing, you know, and where I'm confused and overwhelmed and, you know, not at all in those awake, quote unquote, states, that somehow in just moving through that, I meet a deeper calm than I ever knew. There's a number of models of kind of, of relationship with reality. And I think that there's always a sort of a feeling in me that it's not just arriving in some kind of a state or some kind of a place, that there's a weird, weird, vaster process taking place. And that it's like, yes, our nature and who we are and all of this stuff that happens, but then there's a, a kind of emergence, a co-emergence with the divine. Like Pierre Teilhard de Chardin used to say, union differentiates. And there's a sense in which rather than becoming less specific or less individual, Somehow, as we become more, just naturally move towards more and more union with the divine, we actually also become, it's not like arriving to some kind of place, and now I'm awake, and now I'm enlightened, and now I feel the silence. That there's like 
a way in which life is actually constantly trying to move through it. Sometimes I feel like an orifice. And actually, sometimes I feel like everything is an orifice. It's like and this pulsing of life and it's relentless. And it's like, yes, how to become the orifice willingly and relentlessly. And it's like somehow in that there is this co-emergence that happens, new things. Like it's almost like life is evolving or God is evolving. Like there's this real kind of a process that's more than just I've arrived in an awakened state. Or at least that's how it seems from where I am now, which is far from anything awake in any possible way. So let's just be clear about that. <laughs> I mean, I know that for me, I mean, and I have I have very, very particular, I think, sensibility. So I don't want to say that this is what it is, just what it is for me. It's like what I most value in the people who I consider my mentors, both as like these more removed mentors like Rav Zalman, who I didn't have a very deep personal relationship with, but I've met and worked with. And Jason Schulman is that like how extremely and profoundly human and imperfect they are. Like there's never any pretense that there is like the willingness to be completely themselves. And you can see that in like Cynthia Bourgeau and all of these really wonderful, wonderful teachers. It's like they're just so completely themselves. They're like letting their freak flag, not freak flag actually, but the flag of imperfection fly high. And I really feel like that place of self-disclosure as a human being is really, really, really important for all of us so that we get out of the a friend of mine just sent me something yesterday of like the, the totalitarian chains of shame and, you know, separation from, from those very human, beautiful parts of ourselves. Like the more we disclose our humanity to each other, the more permission we all have to be who we are and to let people in our spiritual lives also just to be imperfect human beings living imperfect human lives. You know, like there's such mercy in that, such forgiveness. I actually really, really, really have no interest in actually the terms awakening, enlightenment, all of those things. It, it's somehow insulting, right? Like these kinds of idealized images, actually insulting to my heart. You know, it's so passe, it's so over. If I have any sense of what's to come, I think more and more real, more and more grounded, more and more embodied, more and more imperfect is sort of what we're going to be seeing on the spiritual scene. I think that it's great to have insight, but the only thing that really matters is how we live it in our really ordinary, imperfect lives. You know, everyone always quotes this, but you know, that the Sangha is the next guru. There's definitely, I feel like this weird relationship between the teacher and the student on one hand is so powerful and necessary or can be so, so tremendously useful. And on another level, it almost feels like it always outlifts its usefulness and then turns into some kind of pathology. Or not always, but sometimes. Like I always question, at what point does it outlive its usefulness? And I do feel like it's important to have teachers and mentors in our life and that it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of a guru, an awakened person, right? That there's kind of a spiritual friendship and relationship that develops with our teachers and in a certain point of your spiritual development, something is appropriate that is not appropriate in another time of your spiritual development. And if we're lucky and if we're graced with the teachers with enough integrity and kindness to facilitate what needs to be facilitated at an appropriate time. And I don't I don't even know if, if progressing is, is the thing, you know, maybe maybe all this emphasis on progress, you know, it's kind of a masculine tendency, wouldn't you say? Like, oh, the, the spiritual life is so that we can progress, so that we can achieve some things. I know this so deeply in me. I want to progress. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, there's this like other part of me that's like, 
maybe I won't progress. Maybe I, you know, like maybe there's a value to to real surrender. And real surrender is like literally not even having the agenda of progress, right? Like of trusting that there is a deeper intelligence in life, a deeper intelligence that guides and unfolds each one of our steps and each one of our spiritual lives. And that when we are in touch with that intelligence, it has its own idea of progress. And I know for me, that's definitely the constant orientation, the constant, you know, like, how do I orient myself? How do I offer myself up? How do I listen deeply enough so that impulse, you know, like that impulse where you just something emerges from you and then it takes you to that next breath, to that next step, to that next. I'm always just trying to listen deeply enough so that I can follow that impulse that true impulse, not some kind of idea that I wanted more of this now or more of that now. So, you know, may we all be so guided by grace. Hey, can I end with a poem? So this is the poem that really, really touched my heart and I think is quite appropriate for this time. It's by Martha Postlewaite. Do not try to serve the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, Create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is yours alone to sing falls into your open cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to the world so worthy of rescue. So may we each find our clearing. was Vera de Chalambert. Vera de Chalambert is a writer, healer, and scholar of comparative religions. She made a big splash with an article that she wrote in response to the election of Donald Trump two years ago. And next, I'm going to read from that article, which is titled, Kali Takes America. Donald Trump may have become president of the United States, but make no mistake, it is really holy darkness that won this election. Last year, Kali, the Hindu goddess of death, destruction, and resurrection, appeared on the Empire State Building, projected as an avatar of conservation by the filmmakers of Racing Extinction, a documentary about the environmental catastrophe now upon us. At the time, I was so struck by the image, I wrote an article about the apparition. This is the sign of the times. Kali takes New York, I raved. On election night, as the results were projected onto the Empire State Building, all I could see was Kali's fierce stare. This was deja vu. This time, Kali took America. 
Donald Trump might already be picking his deplorable cabinet, but it is the dark mother, the destroyer of worlds, oracle of holy change, the tender-hearted beheader that won this country. Kali has brought down our house in a shocking blow, all the illusions of America stripped in a single night. We are not who we thought we were. Now we must get ready to stand in her fires of transmutation. We need them. Only to the degree that people are unsettled is there any hope for them. Paradoxically, the price of true hope, it seems, is being unsettled beyond repair. And this is exactly the opportunity our political moment is presenting to us all. Right now, from all corners of our shocked culture, there are cries of hope, demands of needing to become even brighter lights amidst the spreading darkness. I disagree. I think that this moment gives us an opportunity for reckoning only if instead of running for the light, we let ourselves go fully into the dark. If instead of resolving our discomfort too quickly, we consider the possibility of staying in the uncomfortable, in the irreconcilable, in the unsettled, even if it's four years of it. Before we rush in to reanimate the discourse of hope prematurely, we must yield to what is present. Receptivity is the great quality of darkness. Darkness hosts everything without exception. The Dark Mother has no orphans. We must not send suffering into exile. The fear, the heartbreak, the anger, the helplessness, all are appropriate. All are welcome. We can't dismember ourselves to feel better. We can't cut off the stream of life and expect to heal. Cutting off the inconvenient is a form of spiritual fascism. By resolving to stay only in the light in times of immense crisis, we split life, engage in emotional deportation rather than hosting the vulnerable. Difficult feelings need to be given space so that they can come to rest. They need contact. In a culture of isolation, be the invitation to everything. There's a great yearning for change in the order of things, and the great dark mother is leading that revolution. I am with her. With the election of Donald Trump, our country and the world have entered a dark night of the soul. We might still live in a culture of shine, greed, glam, and white supremacy, but the dark feminine has now reemerged into this cycle, and heaven hath no fury like the great dark mother scorned. Now we must rest here in this darkness to lay heart to the ground as a country and feel intimately all that is being unraveled here. After all, every seed must go into darkness, 
must turn inside out, must break open in order to grow. It is my prayer that as this country sprouts, that this regression give rise to a counterculture of grassroots movements, the likes of which we have never seen, and to a culture of love beyond measure. And that was from Kali Takes America, an article written by Vera de Chalambert about two years ago after the election of Donald Trump. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.